I'd like to read to you just a few verses. I'm not going to share the entire passage. But I was thinking uh, of earlier this week, uh, I was, was reading, um, I'll read from Hebrews 7 for just a second. And uh, this is before we pray. It has nothing to do with the uh, topic tonight. This is just a devotion to encourage you. But I, I was, um, Sunday morning during confession time, I did uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 1 and 2, actually. Uh, it says, these things are written so that you might not sin, but if anyone does sin... We have a, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, so speaking about the goal of the Bible so that we might not sin, and then uh, if we do fall into sin, that there is someone who is, is an advocate on our behalf. And um, I started thinking just about, when I was thinking about Sunday, I was trying, started thinking just about what advocate, what, what kind of advocate he is for us. In fact, much of the New Testament Speaks about the advocate Christ is. And um, getting the car Monday morning, working on Awana verses with my daughter Lily, who she'll be reciting verses tonight. And our Awana verse this week is 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 1. So we've been, 1 and 2, we've been thinking about this verse all week. But in my quiet time today, in Hebrews chapter 7, towards the end of the chapter, um, starting in verse 22, speaks about Jesus. Says this makes Jesus the guarantor of our of a better covenant. He's the one that makes sure that the covenant happens. Verse twenty three: the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. All the priests of the Old Testament had died because they couldn't live forever. But verse twenty four: Jesus he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So Jesus is always permanently. And so the verse I want to show you here, verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And just a, I I can't help but read verse 26. I'm not going to say much about it. For it was indeed fitting that we should have have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And uh, chapter 8, beginning of that, actually describes Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So I don't, I don't know how hard your day's been, or what's going on with you right now, uh, or maybe what sin you might be struggling with, but you have an advocate, First John chapter 2, I mentioned it a minute ago. This advocate right now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, He is the eternal high priest who will never stop advocating for you. And it's interesting here in verse 25, at the end it says, Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always. So I I just, this was a comfort to me personally today that right now, as if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and is right now making intercession for me and you. Right now, he's praying for us. Right now, he's standing in, and he is, when we aren't perfect, he's holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. And so, if there's a great comfort to us as we face a storm or whatever happens, 
There is one always advocating for us before the Father. Let's take a few moments in prayer. And uh, oftentimes in prayer, we bring requests too quickly. I think for a moment it would be a benefit just to meditate on the Lord Jesus Christ, His intercession for me and you right now. May that be encouragement to your personal walk. And then if there's something you want to pray for, you pray, just take a moment right here. You maybe have been busy. Uh, Maybe there's something today that you've been working at and trying through all your power to fix. Maybe you need to pray about it. Ask the Lord to fix it, and then I'll close us in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, as we have heard so much about this storm that's on its way, God, it continually reminds us that as much as we can predict or see the storm coming, we are not the one who rules and reigns this universe. It reminds us of our inability to control things, our frailty in our lives. And God, it reminds us of your power. And Lord, even in the midst of that, we, through these verses here, look up into heaven and know that right now the Lord Jesus Christ is advocating and interceding for us on our behalf. The Lord, the very reason that we can speak with boldness at your throne tonight is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gospel and the blood of Christ that covers our sin so that we might approach you. Lord, we pray right now for ourselves and those in the path of this storm. You might grant us mercy and relent from the effects of this storm. Lord, we pray that you would spare lives and you would protect homes. and Lord, you would show mercy by pulling away this storm. Lord, we also pray for, for those in its path right now that we might be reminded that this is not our home. That people, as they face the possible loss of their possessions or maybe the reality of it in a few days, that God, they would be drawn to you. They would begin to see the value of heavenly treasures. That God, through these moments and those sent out through disaster relief, that they might speak gospel hope to them. And through this disaster, you might bring your glory to people's hearts and lives. May your kingdom grow, even as our earthly lives may be drawn back. Lord, we pray, God, you would be with those first responders, those that are going out that are with disaster relief. God, protect them. God, we pray you would use them, particularly those that are Christians, give them opportunities to share the gospel. And Lord, we pray that ultimately out of all of this, you would, you would gain glory. Protect us, Lord. We all live in the path of this right now and through flooding and whatever may come our way. Lord, we pray you'd protect our homes, protect our families. We ask for your mercy there. And um, Lord, as we we take these few moments tonight, may these moments be of encouragement and assurance of how great and reliable your word is for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Okay, your hand out in front of you. I'm going to talk to you about the authority, the sufficiency, 
and the necessity of Scripture. Maybe not words you typically would use to describe it, but I'm going to begin with authority. In many ways, authority will then lend itself to the sufficiency and the necessity of Scripture. Much of these are connected. In fact, I'll be referencing, if for some reason you weren't here last week, uh, last week we talked, we're talking about teaching about the inspiration of Scripture, how it is inspired by God. That doctrine is crucial before we reach this week. Now, what we'll talk about this week is going to be pertinent and interesting to, to any spot, but before we step into any of this, you must understand the inspiration of the Scriptures. So, for many of you here were last week, I'm not going to rehash all that, other than to say the inspiration of Scripture defines the rest of what we're talking about tonight. So let's begin with authority. We'll, we'll take a few minutes on it. That's the first one. And then we'll move our way to necessity and uh, the sufficiency and necessity. So let me read the summary statement there found, I believe, on your page in front of you. The authority of Scripture is the property by which, as the inspired word of the sovereign God, possesses the right to command what Christians are to believe, do, and be, and to prohibit what they are not to believe, do, and be. So if you notice in here, I mentioned a moment ago the doctrine of inspiration. In the definition, it says, as the inspired word of the sovereign God, then it possesses this right. So it is found in that regard. So let me just walk through major affirmations there on your page. Um, I'll, I'll kind of explain it, and then I'll take you to scriptures to show you where it connects. So um, notice how that inspiration is even rooted in who God is. So, so if I were to draw this in a progression for you, it is that as a sovereign God ultimately has the ability to tell you what's right and what is wrong. So if that is at root level, God is the one who rules and reigns, and at core we believe God is the one who defines for me and you what's right and what is wrong. Then, following that, God has then inspired a group of men to write a book called the Bible. So then, therefore, if you're drawing the line down, we have a sovereign God who rules and decides what's right and wrong, who then wrote the Bible. It is now inspired by him. So now if he's the one deciding what's right and wrong, now he is the one who is speaking that right and wrong. Naturally, out of all of that becomes an authoritative word to us. So the very authority of the Bible is rooted all the way in the character of God. So it's an implication. So I think I, I put it on your paper there. It's a divine author equals a divine authority. Does that make it to your paper? Yeah, so a divine author equals a divine authority. So when we speak about God's divine rule, we also speak about his authoritative word. So we'll talk about some ways in which it's undermined, but if you think about it like this, 
if, we're, if you take away the authority of the Bible, you're actually pressing on the authority of God. That's, that's what I mean. It's so tied together um, that it's tied as a part of the character of God. So therefore, God, if you think about the Bible, God puts the, the Bible so close to him that, that whenever, um, whatever's done with his word is actually what you do with him. So however you respond to the Bible is actually how you respond to God. Again, this is, this is all rooted in the authority of the word. If we believe an authoritative God wrote a book, now this book becomes a defining point for how we interact with God. In fact, that's how God sees the Bible. Think about it like this. Um, if you work at a company, and let's say it's your business, uh, there's a memo sent out to everybody at work. And the memo says, tomorrow, it's okay if everybody wears shorts and flip-flops to work. No big deal. Go for it. Right? Now, does it matter if the memo comes from the boss or the new intern down the hall? Right, if the new intern down the hall sends me that memo at Hickory Grove, I don't feel like that Clint Presley will support my shorts and flip-flops in the office tomorrow. All that to say... The authority of what is written is rooted in who wrote it. And so when you think about the boss writing the memo, when you see the boss's name on it, you go, now I understand what the authority is behind these words. So if I disobey this memo, I disobey the boss. So when you think about the Bible and the authority of the Bible, it is directly rooted and connected to the character of God. So it regulates what you are to believe, do, and even be, like who you're supposed to be, is defined by this Bible. And here's what I'm saying. It is the authority. There is not another authority above this authority. Because it is rooted in God. So there's not like some other authority next to it. It is the authority. We, we said last week, uh, the pastor used the term, I'm going to use it again. It's the prerogative of the Bible, meaning the Bible has the right and the privilege to speak authority into your life. It's the same way as um, if I'm out with my children, they do something wrong. If somebody else walks up to correct my children... They don't have the full prerogative, right? Now, sometimes you act up in a certain way, a certain place. But as the parent, it is my right, my privilege, and my responsibility to provide correction. So the same way here, it is the Bible's prerogative to speak to us with authority. So where is this in the Bible? Let me just mention a few, um, because some of this is rooted in the... Ins- Here's what's so difficult about this doctrine. It's because I, I really just need to say to you, when you, say, how do you find it in the Bible? All I really need to show you is that God can tell you what's right and wrong, and then God inspired the book. And we're done. 
Like, there, I don't have to have a verse that says the Bible has authority. The, those two alone now lead to this doctrine. But I can just give you a couple of, uh, maybe just verses that maybe help too. I, I put on there Isaiah 66, 1. Uh, there's a lot of verses that say this. This is just one example. It says, thus says the Lord. So this is a natural connection. Uh, you say, well, now if the Bible is now saying, thus says the Lord, it is clearly self-attesting, making the statement that it is now speaking for the Lord. So again, if we've made the statement, God's, God's sovereign, he has now inspired this, now he's speaking rules for us. Deuteronomy 30, verses 16 to 18, says this, If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land, and that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and to possess. You just, just feel the authoritative way that it is speaking. You can hear the way the Bible's speaking for God. Finally, I, I, I hesitate to put this, but this is a minor point. Second uh, Peter 3, 15 and 16, I'm not going to read it, but it's where Peter is talking about Paul's writings, and it uses this word uh, for Scripture. It's the Greek word graphe, speaking about the, the writings of the Bible. It's used 51 times in the New Testament. 49 of the times it's used in the New Testament are all speaking about the Old Testament. And then there's two other instances, this being one of them, the other one's in the book of Timothy, where it's speaking about other writings in the Bible. And it calls, this is it's interesting here, Peter calls Paul's writings Scripture. He already sees the writings of Paul as equal to the authority of the Old Testament. So the same word here is used 49 other times speaking about the authority of the Old Testament. He now is taking Paul's writings and putting them right up there with those on par. So all of them are seen as the writings, the authoritative writings of God. So let's speak about errors because this may be the most interesting part of tonight. Here's the first one. Rejection of the inspiration of Scripture leading to a denial of inherent biblical authority. So again, like I said before, the dominoes are falling. If I pull out the inspiration portion, then the authoritative portion naturally falls. If God didn't inspire it, then why should I find it authoritative? Um, the same way it works here, if I all of a sudden find out this was written by the intern at work, now I go, hey, I'm not wearing flip-flops. I know that's not the right memo. And if I all of a sudden find out the Bible is not really written by a holy God, I'm not going to follow it. So, so here's where I would press this and say, and this is, the pastor mentioned this last week with like different denominations and beliefs. If you see a church, I'll repeat it again. If you see a church that is leaving Let's say they've left the gospel, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and they no longer, they say all religions now find their way to heaven, but we still want to be 
a Christian. Or maybe they now are inclusive of all kinds of people and different things that we might not be. Uh, maybe now they say homosexuality is okay. The pastor mentioned that last week. You can almost always find that it's rooted back in this very moment right here. In fact, if you go back, I meant to research this today, but I didn't. But if you go back, I think it's six or eight years ago, um, when the Episcopalian Church kind of, I think when they affirmed the first uh, openly gay bishop. So when they were affirming that, I think it was the same exact year as they were bringing that article to the floor, there was an article on the Word of God that was also brought that undermined its authority. So, so they go hand in hand, is that when we pull the authority out, you also will start, you, you know, it's not, it's not an easy thing to sit down with somebody and say, let me tell you the gospel. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you're actually going to go to hell. That's not a, I, I just say, it's not an easy thing. And in fact, it's not something you, you and if I'm going to sit around and say, you know what? I can throw part of this out. Man, that's much easier. I'm stop doing that. And so what people do is they start saying, okay, I'm going to take off the parts I don't really feel comfortable with. Just keep the parts that I like. That's if you take away the authority of the Bible. One more little piece here. Some people say this is a circular argument. Because really, I mean, where's the proof that it has the authority? Because now I just said, it just says it has the authority. So can I just say I have the authority and... How does that work? Here's the, here's the argument back against that. That all arguments for supreme authority have to be circular. Think with me for a minute. If I am claiming that I have the book that rules every other bit of truth, if I appeal to something else for its authority, that now is the supreme authority. So if it's going to be the supreme authority, it has to be circular. It has to rely on itself for the argument. If somehow it has to say, well, this over here is its proof, well, then ultimately that's a greater authority than this. Because this will be the ultimate authority. So there's just a little bonus piece of that question. Neglect or denial of sola scriptura. I want to take a second on this one. So, Sola Scriptura is the key mark of the Reformation when it was stated that only by Scripture alone, and I'm going to spend some time on each one of these tonight speaking about Scripture alone. Um, and this is, in fact, probably the more key distinction that we would hear people wrestle with. So let me give you several applications uh, where I would say Scripture alone falters. In other words, you would take this as an authority, and then you would come alongside of it and add an additional authority to it, okay? Uh, the first one I would give is sometimes people confuse the authority of a preacher and the authority of the Bible. In fact, I've, I've dealt with this even in the past month. Just as a pastor, I dealt with somebody who had heard something from a preacher and then heard something from then they knew the Bible, and the two didn't go together, and it was actually fairly confusing. And at the end of the day, if I say something up here with, that is not to be found in here, 
then you need to take what I said and throw it in the trash. And you need to pick it back up with whatever's here. So, so I bring that up just to say is that oftentimes it can be confusing with the authority of the preacher. And here's how the best way to say it is that what gives the authority is always the word. And so that's what gives me any sort of, like what gives me the right of any to stand up in front and make some sort of declaration about your life? Me personally, Mike Powers doesn't possess any sort of special. Many of you have been Christians longer than I have, have experienced things in your walk I've never even known to experience. The, the, the way I have that ability, and the way any of us can, is when we open the Word, I now preach the Word to your soul. This is the authority that you submit to, not me. So don't confuse the authority of the preacher with the authority of the Bible. Um, let me give you another one. The pastor mentioned this. Uh, some people think that certain passages of the Bible are more authoritative. Last week you talked about the red letters of the Bible. That can be a little bit confusing for us. If Jesus' words are in red, then you go, oh, there's Jesus' words. Let's follow those a little bit more, and then we come over here. Those aren't Jesus' words, right? Well, no, 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 no. We need the whole thing. So uh, we need to be careful about, and this has been a way in which it's been undermined in the past, is that we would say, okay, this passage these are the passages that we would believe in. And then when Paul wrote it, well, did Paul get this right? Because we follow Jesus. We'll follow what Jesus said, but then Paul, we're not so sure. So, so in other words, we believe all of it is authoritative. None of it is more or less authoritative if you pick it up. Um, let me do a couple others. I got several here. All right, I'm going to take, take a run at this one. And I want you to process uh, when I say sola scriptura, it is, it is something that comes from the Reformation. The Reformation is when, when we became what we know as Protestant. We protested against what we know of as the Catholic Church. And one of the key things we protested against was the doctrine of Scripture, or even how God has revealed His truth to us. So here's how it would break down. We would say that God's authority is found in Scripture alone. And I was reading this today. I thought I, brought, I was going to bring it in, but frankly, as I read it, I was reading some, some writings from the Council of Trent. Because if you read when the Reformation happened in the early 1500s, there was a counter-Reformation in the Catholic Church where they clarified some of the things they believed up against the Protestants. As that happened... The Catholic faith, they stated several things. And I had several of them, and I, I read them. I had to read them about four times to understand them. And I thought, if I come in here and I read them to you verbally, you might not pick them up. So if you want to do it, go read the Council of Trent. And as a part of that, they made statements. And one of the things that they did is they didn't say it was by Scripture alone. They made Scripture and put three things up next to each other. Scripture, tradition, and then what they would call the Catholic Church's magisterium, the Pope and the bishops. So then tradition and the church leadership is responsible for interpreting the Bible, and then they speak this ruling authority as a whole. And so one of the key marks that would distinguish, uh, and that's why sola scriptura is such a big deal for us as a Protestant, is we would say this Bible alone Whereas they would say, 
that they would add the tradition of the church. In other words, there were teachings that were passed down through the church as they taught over the years, and that's just been kept by the church. That's just as authoritative. And the pope and the bishops, what they state is just as authoritative. That's why you see the pope will make statements, these papal statements, and those will be on the same level as the Bible. And so uh, that's how the, the differences come. And so that's why as a Protestant, you distinctly live by Scripture alone. So let me give you a, a, another one. Uh, I could go on and we'll run out of time if I keep on these. Um, elevation of other worldviews. Here, here's what I saw happen um, as authoritative. I watched, I hate using examples, but they're, they're real, and I don't want to run anybody in the ground, but I watched a church, and one of the, uh, what it was, the Sunday morning sermon was an interview with a psychologist about the mind. And they would talk about God, and some of the things made sense. But in the preaching moment of the week for the church was a psychologist's statements, a scientist, somebody who observes the world. And while be it, I don't want to say that everything they had to say was, was, was completely false. I'm just saying that that's not the moment to hold up another worldview in many senses. Frankly, what they were giving is another means of change other than the gospel. All right, so there's one other. Just other worldviews get elevated. Um, and then here's the last one that may sneak up on you. I'm going to take another shot here. So forgive me at the end of the night if I've, if I've taken a shot at something that I didn't mean to. But uh, elevation of prophetic words. We elevate prophetic words up next to Scripture. Here's what I mean. In fact, I saw this years ago. Um, I knew somebody that had gone to a Seventh-day Adventist church. If anybody has any, any experience with Seventh-day Adventist. Um, and I didn't know much about it. And so here's what you got to do. You go to, if you're not sure about a church, you learn to read belief statements. You should all learn to do this. If you know a church you're going to, you go click on the website. Right on the website, you go click beliefs, and you read belief statements. And you can go right to our website. You can do it very. You can do it right on ours, and you can see everything we state we believe from the Baptist faith and message. Now, I did this years ago, probably fifteen years ago, and I remembered it today as I was preparing. And I went to the Seventh Day Adventist website. I did it again today, and I read their statements. So, let me see if I can do this fairly quickly. Here's what they say about the Bible: It's the Holy Scriptures, the Old and the New Testaments. They're the written word of God. By divine inspiration, the inspired authors spoke and wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In the Word, God has committed to humanity the knowledge necessary for salvation. Talk about that in a minute. The Holy Scriptures are supreme, authoritative, and the infallible revelation of His will. The standard of character, the test of experience, and the definitive revealer of doctrines, and the trustworthy record of God's act in history. That sounded pretty good. I mean, I, I don't necessarily disagree with anything I read. That's Article 1. Article 18. <laughs> Sorry. The Scriptures testify that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. The gift is an identifying mark of the remnant church, and we believe it was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. 
Her writings speak with prophetic authority, provide comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction to the church. Well, where'd that come from, right? I mean, it's a curveball. It, it threw me there. Well, what, what's Ellen writing to us here, right? So my, my whole point with this, and again, I'm, my goal is not to take shots at other denominations or people. I, I, I desire to do this to help you see the distinction of what I'm getting at here. It's to say that even though I could have read their statement on the Bible and been like, right, that wasn't terrible. It didn't say inerrant, by the way. It said infallible. But it, it, it didn't lead, it wasn't anything terrible. And I get all the way down and I see now what they've said is, let me hold up here. Now, they, now they'll eventually say that it's not, not the Bible, but it's authoritative, right? I, I don't want to call anybody else's prophetic writings authoritative. And so this is where some of the undermining of Scripture alone is, is undermining the authority of the Bible simply just by uh, adding prophetic writings. All right, one more. I'm going to keep giving them. Years ago, I heard of a professor. This is personal experience. Some people, professor at a, at a, was a Christian school, they, they took a, a um, I forget, like a New Testament class. And they got on the doctrine of original sin. What we believe there is that when you are, it's not that you are born um, sinless and then after a few years you kind of learn to sin. We believe you are born a sinner. Like it, it is part of how you are born. And the guy explained the whole doctrine in the class. And then he said, you know what, I believe that. And uh, this was one of our college students. Came back from this school. You know the school. It's in the area. And... She said, sat in the class, said, I believe that. He said, but I quit believing that the day that my baby was born. I said, the baby was born. I took the baby into my arms, and I thought, how can this adorable little baby be a sinner? So he just basically took experience and just said, I know that's in the Bible. Done with that, right? That's not, that's not the authority of Scripture alone. Now experience has now superseded that. So anyway, I, I, just, I tried to think of examples of some of these for you, but this is where we hold to the authority of the Bible alone. So how do we enact this doctrine? How does it look in our life? So one of the ways is we face the rejection of biblical authority. I probably won't take the time on this that I could, but the, I think there is a societal movement that is dismantling authority. You can look all around, and as the, we are dismantling structures of authority. And it's just, I'm not, this is not a political thing. It's just happening everywhere. From, as you can, you can draw it back to the fact when, when divorce was made, legalized, and you start to see the home come apart. Uh, you see the home come apart. We're watching the government kind of come apart a little bit right now. You just feel, there's this movement against authority right now. So you, you press that a little bit further, and I would say that the authority is not popular. And so then when we press a statement to say, here is a book that you must submit all of life to, is not a real popular thing. It's rejected. So the second thing I'll say here is we should live out biblical authority concretely. So, so let me put two sides of this. I'll say the... I'll just two applications of how you should live out biblical authority. 
One of them, you need to be real careful. If this book, think about it like a dangerous weapon. It describes itself as a sword, right? That is sharp, it's two-edged, it, it cuts. I mean, and it, and it cuts sharp. So if this has that kind of ability and power and it is precise, I need to be real careful how I swing it. In other words, uh, if I'm going to say something authoritative to somebody's life, I need to be real careful that it's in there. I need to, if, if we are holding it to be authoritative, I need to make sure that every sort of rule, law, anything I state from it is actually something from the Bible. So, so I'll say it from that side, be real, show it great respect that when you speak about the Bible, you don't speak about it in a loose manner. You, you hold it as if it has power. And then the other side of it, I think that where we as Christians probably undermine it is that we actually state it has authority, but yet live like it doesn't. So your sin actually undermines in a very real, tangible, lived out way that you don't actually think it holds sway over your life. And so that's that's just a real practical statement of if it holds authority, you will submit your life to it as well as state that. Okay, let's do the next couple in like 10 minutes. We'll see. You know, some nights I write my notes out and I think, ah, this, I'm not going to have enough. <laughs> That's what I thought tonight. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right, so sufficiency and a necessity. And really, if I, necessity is good. Man, sufficiency is something I want to help. If you've not, not grasp. This is such a strong doctrine. I was reading a quote earlier today that said the greatest challenge to the doctrine of the scripture today isn't the authority. It's actually the sufficiency of the scripture. So I want you to, I want you to think on this one a minute because it actually may be the, the greatest challenge we have to the usage of the Bible. So I'll read the definition. Sufficiency is an attribute of scripture where it provides everything that people need And here's really for two purposes, to be saved and everything that Christians need to please God fully. So everything you need to be saved and everything you need to do to be holy. The necessity of Scripture is an attribute of Scripture where it is essential for knowing that way of salvation, for progressing in holiness, and for discerning God's will. In other words, you have to have it to know it. You cannot know it without it. You need it, the necessity of the Bible. Let me explain the two a little further. Let's start with necessity, with sufficiency. That means everything about the Bible is provided for you. You don't need anything else to live a holy Christian life but the Bible. It reveals that to you. Now, when the Bible reveals it to you, it says you need a church, right? But that all comes from the Bible. It is the source of the sufficiency of your walk. You can lean on it wholly for your life. Now, it's not absolutely sufficient. In other words, it doesn't teach you every little thing about life. And that's where it says these two particular ways. It teaches you salvation, and it teaches you, really, sanctification or holiness. It shows you how to, be, how to live a holy life, and it teaches you how to be saved. Uh, the verse for this, to give you a biblical text, is 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 15 says this, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the purpose of the Bible right there. 3.15 makes you wise for salvation. Then verse 16, look what it does. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? Now notice what it does to you. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So that what it does, it makes you the man of God that can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So notice the two parts to it. Salvation and really sanctification. The way it plays out sufficiently in your life. So let's go back to the sola scriptura comment earlier. So if we believe that Scripture alone is sufficient for your life, this doesn't mean that tradition is useless. Because we said earlier that the, the Catholic Church is going to take tradition and make it with a capital T. It is going to be like Scripture and tradition are whole. We would take tradition and make it with a lowercase t. We say, how has the church handled the Word? The Word has always been ultimately authoritative, but the tradition of the church can actually help us understand how the word has been handled. Ultimately, if we find out tomorrow that the tradition of the church is not matched the word, the tradition falls, the word stands. In fact, I read earlier, it's actually in this book, it actually says that now since the, for, for the Catholic church, if you have the bishops and the popes and tradition that are now looking at scripture, if scripture falls, you still have the main primary authoritative means it actually kind of becomes more even secondary in the mix. So all that to say is that we would hold that the Bible is supreme. I put three references there for you. Each say essentially the same thing, is that we shouldn't add to it. In other words, it is complete. And here's what I mean is that this book is now sufficient because you have all of it. Deuteronomy 4, Proverbs 30, and Revelation 22 all speak of the sufficiency of Scripture. Right. There, she's saying there's a warning if you add to it. Uh, you need to leave it like it is. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think that would be. I th the question was, if you're reading through the Bible and you're using another word to try to explain, you know, you, you get the sanctification or propitiation and you're reading to your kids and you think, they have no idea what this means. Uh, to use another word there is not, you're not adding or taking away. In fact, you're explaining. I, I, I don't think... Now, if you're going to use another word and try to add stuff to it, or use another word and try to take stuff away, that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to what preaching would be. Preaching's intent is never to add or take away. It's to explain. And so I think that's what you would look at it and say, when you're trying to use a different word, it, and I think that's what different versions of the Bible try to do, I think that would be the goal is to try to explain it clearly. So I don't think that would be taken away at all. Um, let's look at necessity. I'm moving a little quickly here so that I can have a moment to speak about, uh, let's see, where am I at? Necessity. 
Uh, the same thing happens here from 2 Timothy 3. If the Bible is the means where it says earlier, it's what makes you wise for salvation, you have to have it for salvation. Romans chapter 10 speaks about this when it says, how will they be saved if no one goes? And how will they be saved if, no, if they don't hear? Right? So if they don't hear the message of 2 Timothy 3 that, that makes you wise unto salvation, they will not be saved. So what we're saying here is the message of the Word of God is necessary for salvation. Okay. Oh, okay. I apologize if it's confusing. Well, I, are you talking about Deuteronomy and Proverbs and Revelation? Okay. Okay. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Okay. So... <laughs> So let, let me carry this through that uh, sola scriptura is the key part of the necessity again. If the Bible alone is what gives salvation, it is what alone will be what is necessary for that. So let's talk about the major errors. We've just got a few minutes left. Uh, emphasizing the Spirit of God to the neglect of the dismissal of, word, of the Word of God. I would say this is classically done in charismatic movements. You see this idea of experiencing the Spirit of God, and then you try to get these revelations or experiences of God, while the Word of God, the teaching of the Bible, becomes diminished or at least equal. So one of the errors we can do here is with the sufficiency of the Word, is to emphasize the Spirit of God over and above the Word of God. In fact, if you were to say, this is where to get into my piece here, if you were to say, I want to hear from the Holy Spirit, my answer to you is, the Holy Spirit has written an entire book to you. You don't have to go to some supernatural experience. You've got it all written right in front of you. You have to go to something extra. So, so this is sufficient for you. Uh, in fact, um, one, of the, one of the things I thought of just this past week as I was thinking about that, I actually saw something. Again, these are just examples from my past few weeks that I think people don't realize it when they say it. And one of the comments, uh, I saw someone say they're, they're, they were striving to be closer to the Lord. And the way they described it is they said, my goal uh, in trying to be closer to the Lord, I, I just want to hear more from Him. So the thought was, I, in order to hear more from God, I'm trying to be quiet, in front, be quiet with Him. Now, I, I do think there is a spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. And I do think meditation is a Christian thing. But here's the thing that is different about our meditation. Is Eastern meditation says, I'm going to empty my mind so that I can somehow find something. But you know what? I know that Jeremiah 17, 9 says that my heart's pretty wicked. And if I empty my mind, things don't go so well. <laughs> so if I were to reverse that and say, when I meditate as a Christian, Psalm 1, Joshua 1, he who meditates on the Word of God is like a tree planted by streams of water type deal. So I'm going to, 
I'm going to say, when I have a moment of silence and solitude, and I want to hear from God, my mind rolls around on this. So, so I, I guess my point's to say, is that to say, well, I just want to hear from God more, and I'm just going to sit in silence. Well, I feel like it's like God's screaming right here, and you know, it's like, God, where are you at? You know, he's, he's, he's here. So, so don't, again, this is where it's an attack on it. This is sufficient. You don't need some sort of extra something. You got it. So don't, don't go looking elsewhere for some sort of experiential thing when God, is, God has actually spoken to you. And, and allow the Holy Spirit to, to speak to you through this. So that, that's the next part I'll say, is emphasizing the Word of God to, to the neglect of the Spirit of God. Now, while be it, this is God's Word to us. Uh, Corinthians says that I can't understand this without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And so I have to know that that in order to understand the word, I have to have the Spirit of God to help me do it. Uh, so, so you don't want to go so far to say that this is only the word of God, I don't need the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God helps me understand the word of God. Here's another one. Permitting some source other than Scripture to usurp the supreme authority of Scripture. This is what I've already mentioned. Alan G. White. It's uh, the Book of Mormon. It's whatever you want to come up with where people take some other book and it's, it's what we just mentioned earlier. It's tradition and the papal authority and the magisterium all coming up next to the scripture. We, we would say this is uh, scripture alone. And um, I, I'll close uh, with a couple things. Ways to enact the doctrine. Refusing to go beyond scripture. So uh, one of the things that I just had to learn to do is just trust the Bible. And if I can encourage you with anything like uh, maybe the Lord will put you to teach sometime or maybe when you, if you get up in front of a group of people when you're teaching, uh, you should always rely most heavily just on the Bible. I know this may sound a little strange, but I find a lot of people may just read one verse and feel like the rest of their teaching is spent talking about stuff. I would like for the majority of the time while I am talking or preaching, I'm doing a Bible study to be talking about the Bible. Now I know tonight it's a little bit different teaching a topic. But if let's say on a Sunday morning when I'm preaching, sometimes I wonder, I fear, I'm like, I look at a sermon before a Sunday morning and I think, man, I just talk a lot about the Bible today. I don't know if I'm talking enough to people. I honestly, I've thought that several times. So I just, I have too much just Bible explanation here. And then I think, well, then what else am I doing, right? I, 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 so then I have to step back and say, I'm just going to trust the sufficiency of the word to do its work. It's not me or some sort of creative story. So then when you get up in the morning and you say, I need to spend time with the Lord, just open it up and you have to trust like the sufficiency of the word. Just read the Bible. I heard one of our Sunday school teachers was describing a lesson. This is probably two years ago now. He said he got to the end of his lesson, and he got to the third point, and he didn't have time to do the third point. So he thought, what am I going to do for the next minute? He said, well, I'm just going to read the Bible from the third point. So I figured that would be better than anything else I would have said. I I thought that was a great moment of sufficiency of Scripture. It's the thought is, I'm going to read the Bible. And uh, I hope that you can appreciate this. 
Uh, this is from our pastor's leadership. But if you, if you notice on a Sunday morning how many times we read the Bible, I, I don't know if... I, I, <laughs> I like to watch other preachers. And I'll turn on and watch preachers all over the country and different people I've heard of. And I like to watch them and think about what they do. And sometimes I time how long it takes for them to open their Bible. And I mean, it'll be like 10 minutes. We've been talking. I'm like, whoa, you haven't talked about the Bible yet. It bothers me a little bit. To me, it's an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. If you notice when you come here, before we ever start a service, John Stegmert stands up, opens up. What does he do every time? Reads the Bible. Every week, come up for confession, open the Bible, read the Bible. I bet 80% of the time, even though there's not a verse placed out there, Steve Adams opens up, walks up for his prayer time, opens up, reads the Bible. So before the pastor even steps in the pulpit, we've already read it three times. Before we even get to the actual Bible. And again, I just hope you guys feel what we are there is we believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture. So we believe when we open that Bible, things happen. Last piece, and then I'm done. I know I'm at the end of my time. You need to make sure that in your daily life, the Bible is sufficient. You know why your kids right now, for those of you in Iwana, are, are over there and they're doing what? They're memorizing Scripture. There's, again, <laughs> you think, well, we just do that. We can do a whole host of programs. We, we do Awana because we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. We believe it is sufficient for what we need. And I would argue those that don't do that much with the Bible, the problem they have is probably not authority. It's probably not inspiration. It's sufficiency. I think that's probably why the greatest attack on it is the sufficiency of Scripture and not the others. Because we don't actually believe that it's going to do the work that it says it will do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact we can lean on it. It is the ultimate authority of our lives. We thank you for the fact that, God, we, we don't have to feel like we have it all together. We know the word has it together for us. And so, Lord, we pray now as we look to your word and look to you, Lord, we ask for you to continue to change and mold us. Make us people that know that book. We love that book. We memorize the Bible. We breathe it, Lord. And, Lord, that it is just part of our, our life, that, that, that we, put, we hide it in our hearts, that we don't sin. And, Lord, we meditate on it day and night so that our life is like a tree that is firmly planted uh, by a stream of water and our, our leaf doesn't wither and we're strong as a Christian. So, God, we pray we would use your word in our lives and we trust it. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.